Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So, this morning, we, we come in the Word of God again to Matthew 25. One more week in it, and then we're going to move on to the events that follow. Jesus is speaking in 24 and 25 of Matthew to his disciples. He's doing it on the Mount of Olives, and thus it's called the, the Olivet Discourse. Just means on the Mount of Olives. Discourse means a private teaching rather than a public sermon. And in these two chapters of Matthew, shorter section than the Sermon on the Mount, which precedes it, though there's a number of parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says here. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, was the thousands. This is just the twelve. But uh, this is a final teaching. It's not the final teaching. We know in John that at the Last Supper, Jesus speaks again and teaches his disciples in a number of things. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You will be known by your love for each other. And it's a very intimate teaching that takes place there. This is a different form of teaching. It's Tuesday night of the last week of Christ's life. Wednesday, he spends time in the temple. We know from the the gospel's accounts. Thursday, Jesus is with his disciples and that's the night he's betrayed. Friday, the events of the atonement take place. The events that are our focus this morning and will be next week as well. So I, I invite you to stand with me as we read Matthew 25 verse 31 through 46, and then to raise your hands in prayer, and I hope that this is a practice you'll continue whenever in this church someone prays for the, the application of God's word that you'll support them with your hands up. I am immensely supported by you and immensely grateful for your support. A pastor lives on the attention and the prayers of, of, the, of the congregation, and you have been a great blessing to me. So, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth, eternally so. Make us servants of your word. May we bow before your presence in our midst through the living word of God this morning. And may my words and my thoughts reflect yours, Father, and not be mine, and thus have your your authority and your power and your conviction attending them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. It's almost impossible to ignore the reality of these, these two chapters that we are coming to the end of. These two chapters in which Jesus preaches to his disciples on the top of the mountain. These, these chapters are intense. They are, in a, in a sense, scary. I really, I, I, I'm not sure what I'm thinking. It's actually three chapters. It begins in 24. I knew that, but in my mind I was saying two. It's actually three chapters. Three scary chapters. Three chapters in which Jesus ratchets up the tension. Three chapters in which Jesus employs a mechanism that we have in many respects said is unfair and, and manipulative. And that mechanism, of course, is fear, in which Jesus creates an environment through his words of fear, apprehension, and for his disciples, kind of foreboding. Who can read Matthew 24, the signs of Christ's return, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, you as followers of Christ being delivered over to to tribulation and being killed, hated by all nations because of my name, then the abomination of desolation, the, the fruitlessness that is the abomination of those times, the coming of the Son of Man coming with a great trumpet, the parable, the only, well, the only parable in the first chapter of these three, Uh, of the fig tree, that the fig tree, you need to understand the time and, and, and be aware and be ready, be ready for his coming. Then a story of the, of a, a household where the master leaves people in charge and he comes at a time when they don't expect it. And the slave left in charge is, is abusing the other slaves. The master will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will weeping, be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Parable then following that in chapter 25. Uh, the parable of the, the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who went with their lamps. Five of them have their oil run out. Five of them 
are rejected. Five of them say, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered and said, truly, I say to you, I don't know you, therefore stay awake, for you don't know the, the day nor the hour. The door was shut. The parable of the talents, the man who goes on a journey and gives three servants three sets of talents. And two make a return or fruitful with their talents, one is not. The master returns and says, well, I know you, master. The, the, the servant says, I know you. I hid the money because you're a hard guy, and I, I know how hard you are, so I hid your money, and, and here it is back, but I, I don't have any more, but I have exactly what you gave me. The master says, huh, you wicked, lazy slave, you know I reap where I don't sow and gather where I scatter no seed. He goes on, should have put my money in the bank, and he says, take that talent from him, give it to the one who has the ten, and throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, repeat it. And then we come to the final judgment when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. What we've just read. And he will say to those who are on his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And he ends by saying, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Can we deny that Jesus is trying to inculcate fear? Can we deny that this is like so many other instances in the Bible where God is present and he's saying, you'd better be afraid. Can we deny that this is every bit as powerfully fear-inducing and that that's the intent of God as the lightning and the thunder and the earthquakes and the smoke and the flames on top of Mount Sinai when when the exiting Jews stand at the base and God says, don't come near, you'd better fear me, don't come near my mountain and my holiness. Can we deny that this is a situation that's in fact more intense than when Moses sees the burning bush and God says, don't come near? Can we deny that God is a God who seeks to have us fear him viscerally, deeply, at the core of our being. Well, we can deny that. And in fact, in America today, I think the great goal of our nation is to eradicate danger so that no one ever has to fear. It's true of our nation, and it's true of the church in our nation. And so we have in the church in our nation people who say, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I don't do that kind of thing. But Jesus was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. What else do you call these chapters? Weeping, gnashing of teeth, eternal fire. These things repeated over and over again as he teaches his disciples.
But fear is, fear is feared. Fear is the bogeyman of American life. I think of how far we've gone to eradicate danger so that there's no need to fear. Our soldiers fight like it's a video game. We put them in Arizona and say, go and kill the bad guys from here and you'll use the drone. It's American military today. Stand off. Don't risk your life. There are reasons for this. I'm not, I'm just saying. It's the same thing that we see when you go over to Fort Meigs in the wintertime. How many of you remember when you were allowed to sled down the slopes behind Fort Meigs? How many of you have done that? How many of you never knew that it could happen? Because now we've said, oh no, we're not going to let our kids sled down Fort Meigs. They might get hurt. All the contraptions that you buy to keep your little baby safe so that you don't have to teach the baby to fear you and to fear your word and to fear the dangers that are in the house. We put on all the little child-proof things. We make our cars as safe as we can make them. Everywhere you turn, America is saying, don't fear. And her pastors are saying exactly the same thing. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. God is mercy and grace. Of course, these things are true. Over the years, I've said, I wish that we could write two things at the north and south entrance or either of these two entrances. One of them is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then the other is the joy of the Lord is my strength. Christian life is to be lived between these two poles. And it's not to be in the center or entirely on the joy end. We are to recognize that fear is part of God's work in our lives. So I want to speak to you from this passage about Jesus' use of fear and what he tells us to fear. And it's very clear in this passage that what he's saying to you, you must fear. And obviously, he's speaking to you. He's not speaking to the world. Are we clear on that? This is not a sermon that's preached to the wild crowds out in the wilderness. This is preached to his closest followers. And he says to them, you'd better fear. You need to fear. There is a danger. And that danger applies to you. What is it that he's calling them to fear? He's calling them to fear the justice of God. He is warning them that God will judge the world. That the master is going to return and have an accounting from his slaves. That the bridegroom is going to arrive and the wedding is going to begin and people are going to be cast out. That God is a God of justice and judgment. Words that we really don't like to apply to God anymore. But God is a judge, and he has assigned the task of judging to his son. So Jesus Christ himself, in addition to being the savior of the world, is the judge. He judges as the father does. All judgment has been given to the son. So when we come to Jesus as savior, we are coming to our judge. And that should breed a sense of fear. God is a God whose justice 
is divine justice. It's not the justice of the American judicial system, which says, oh, eh, background, this, that, the other. We're going to shape it the way we want. God says in his word, if a man sheds the blood of another man, by man that man's blood should be shed. But we think we're better than that. We've risen above that. We look down on that eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of economy of justice and say, oh, that's beneath us. We are not going to do these things. These are the things that God commands. This is the justice of God. And so our justice system portrays a God that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is very different than what we see in the American justice system. God is a God who says, you must pay for the sins you've done. You will pay, you will either pay through my son and his blood shed on your behalf and you're coming to him, or you will pay yourself. Let me tell you, though the world says that God is not that kind of a God, and even Christians say it, oh, God is not that kind of a God. God would not cause his son to die. God would not make his son bear the sins of the world. That's not really how the atonement works. That would be divine child abuse. Though the world says this about God, Though the world says justice does not remand, demand retribution, that the justice is kindness, justice is understanding. The world knows better. The world knows that's not true. Some years ago I saw a video, and I, I think I may have shown it in church 10, 15 years ago in a service. It's gotten a name since then. It's called the Showdown at Kruger. It's taken by a, a group of, well, it's taken by one person who's in a group of tourists who are on a safari in Africa. And you watch, and it's grainy, it was done in 2004, and you watch as the tourists are across a body of water from what you see is a, a lead buffalo, water buffalo, big horns, and a few smaller water buffalo walking along that body of water. Then the, the camera, it takes place over five or seven minutes. The camera, how many of you have seen this? Uh, a good number of you. The camera pans to the right, to the right of the person in the, in the open safari vehicle. And the woman who's doing the filming, I, I, maybe a woman or a man, I can't remember, but someone says, oh, look. And as the camera zooms in, you see there's a pride of lions over on the right. And they're just looking casually down at the buffalo that are approaching them from the left along this body of water, right? And you see the camera goes back and the, the lead buffalo is a big beast, man. He, he's walking towards the lions. The lions stop just sort of lolling and looking and now they're crouched. They're way hunkered down and they're looking intently at the approaching buffalo. And there's like six or eight lions a male, some females, some younger ones. And you see the camera goes back and you see the big buffalo walk, 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 walk. Little buffalo right behind. And then they're getting close. I mean, like from, from me to, to you, Bob, you know. And... and 
suddenly the lead, the lead water buffalo, you can see him going, you can see he's either seeing or smelling or hearing or something, but he, his, his head shakes. He walks a couple more steps and then he realizes that he's just down the path from a whole bunch of lions. And so he, he turns and runs. He just moves as fast as he possibly can and starts galloping away. And immediately the lions charge, right? Lions charge. They don't go for the big buffalo. They go for the little buffalo that was right behind him, the baby buffalo. And they immediately pull the baby buffalo into the water and start biting him, latching onto him. Every lion has a piece of that little water buffalo. They're there in the water, and this is sort of extraneous, but it's part of the scene. So they're there in the water, and they're, they're forcing the buffalo onto land so they can start tearing them apart. And suddenly, two crocodile come and start biting the lions. It's wild. It's just a crazy scene. Two, and one crocodile takes this huge, I mean, it's not a tiny little thing. This thing is this tall. Takes the rear end of the buffalo and puts it in its mouth and starts, and there's a tug of war between six lions and one crocodile with that little baby buffalo. Eventually, the lions prevail. They get the buffalo up on the ground and off out of the water, and they start, they start to, to bite and clamp down on that little guy. At which point, you hear the people in the safari vehicle say, oh, look, oh, look. And the camera pans to the left where it had never gone before, and suddenly you see that it's not just three or four water buffalo. There's 500 of them. And they are walking back towards the lion and their little guy. And that lead buffalo, who was the first to get spooked, is now right there. And the lions hunker down. Each of them has a piece of the little water buffalo in his mouth. And the little water buffalo is still straining to get away. The lions come back. The lions stand there around it. The water buffalo come back and, and they start filling in behind and even going to the far side, to the right of the lions. The lions go menacingly at the water buffalo like, don't, don't try and surround us. But that lead buffalo out of the, the 500 or however many there are is angry the one that was spooked. And he keeps on coming closer and closer to the lions and they flinch because it's now a crowd of buffalo that surround them. They flinch and, uh, and then he makes a charge. That big daddy water buffalo, he makes a charge. And he grabs a lion on his horns and flings that lion six feet in the air. And that leads to all the buff, the, the lion, it's about three go to the right. That one runs through the crowd the other direction. Probably, from what I've read, mortally wounded by that, by that blow. And in the midst of it all, that, that, that big water buffalo keeps charging the lions. Eventually, they give up their hold on the little water buffalo. That little water buffalo goes and rejoins the crowd. But does that guy stop? 
You can bet he doesn't stop. He keeps charging them and charging them. And the last scene you have is that little water buffalo is well ensconced, safe within the crowd, within the herd. But that big buffalo is chasing the big lion, and he will not let go. He charges and charges, and the big lion is running. Now, do you think the universe doesn't know that justice is retributive? Do you think that even the animals don't understand that if these lions go after my little guy, I'm going to kill him? And that that's right? Do you think it's not an expression of God that that big water buffalo said, you're not touching mine, and you did, and therefore you tried to kill mine, I'm going to kill you? And praise God, God has given us government so that we're not left at primal urges like this ourselves just to do it ourselves. But God says the government bears the sword for a purpose. What is the sword? It's not an instrument of correction. It's an instrument of punishment. God has given punishment because God is a God whose justice demands that for a life, a life must be paid. This is the nature of the universe. We can pretend otherwise, but we know we're wrong. When it becomes our child that's killed, we know that that attitude, that it doesn't really matter, that justice can be just nice, is wrong. So we have Jesus informing us that the justice of God is retributive, that there is a fire which has been prepared and that there are some who will go away with the devil and his angels into that eternal punishment, even as the righteous go into eternal life. Now, I want to ask you, what is it that separates those who go to eternal punishment from those who go away to eternal life? What does this passage teach us? You may be inclined to say, well, one does one thing and another does another thing. And so it must be the good works of the one versus the lack of good works in the other, right? And we'll come to the works of these two groups next week, but there's something obviously deeper than the works of these groups that is at issue here. The distinction is really not what they've done. There's something deeper that, that is maybe obscured to your mind, but should be very obvious from what is said here by Jesus, that actually is the basis of the distinction that the king makes between those on his left and those on his right. Listen, what does Jesus say is the distinction between these groups? What is the distinction? Listen to what Jesus says to the righteous. Then the king will say to those on his right, and this is verses 34 through 40, come you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent 
that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Are you clear on what Jesus says here? They'll say, hey, when did we do these things you attribute to us? He will say, to the extent that you did that to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The basis of his judgment, right? Notice the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen to what Jesus says to the unrighteous. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you, then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Do you understand the disparity there? Do you sense the great, what we would call, unfairness, unevenness between the two groups? How many deeds do the righteous have to have done to be accounted righteous. How many acts of righteousness? Did you catch it? Just one. As you did one act like this to one of my brothers, it was done to me. What is the basis of judgment of the unrighteous? Those excluded. They say, Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you needing food. When did we see you in prison? When did we see these things? What does he say? Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. One righteous deed is enough for the righteous to enter. One failure is enough for the accursed to be excluded. There's something far deeper here than their deeds. Their deeds are evidence. Their deeds are the superstructure, but there is a foundation here that we must never lose sight of. And that is that the righteous look at Jesus at his second coming and they mourn. They look on him and they weep as for an only begotten son. They look at him and they see him as he'll appear for all eternity, not at this moment, but three days from now. They see the scars of the crown of thorns. They see the lashes on his back, the ripping of the flesh. They see the holes in his hands and his feet that were put there to to nail him to the cross. They see the wound in his side from the spear. And we know they're still visible because Thomas was asked to put his hand in them. They'll see those and they'll say, we did nothing. We did nothing. 
you have done it all and we are undeserving. The unrighteous say, hey, we did it. We did it. They look on that same Jesus and they say, hey, man, I'm okay. When did I fail you, Jesus? Failing to recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. This is, of course, the question that that stands before us. There are three famous basic views of what Christ did on Calvary. They have technical names, and I'll give you them. But it doesn't really matter if you know the technical names or not, as long as you understand what these three things say. The first view is held by much of Protestantism today, all liberal churches. To a certain degree, it's held by Roman Catholicism, especially ignorant Roman Catholicism, those who really don't know what their church teaches. It's called the moral influence theory of the atonement. And the the description of its name is clear enough that you should probably be able to guess what it is. Jesus came and died to show us how to live. Jesus came and died to be a moral influence, to show us the upright life. He's a great example. It doesn't really matter if he was God or not. He is perfect and we should live like him. And if we live like him, we will enter heaven. You understand that view? And it's what most of your neighbors hold to if they hold to anything Christian at all. Not joking. I'm a good person. I'm doing right. I'm looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, yeah, I want to live like that. Follow the golden rule. You know, love your neighbor, love as you love yourself, and you'll get to heaven. Moral influence view of the atonement. You please God by your good deeds. Jesus is just an example to you. Is that your view? That's the view of these crowds. That's the view of the goats. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, we saw you. We liked you. Let us in. The other group says, we don't deserve to be in. But this group says, no, we deserve to be in. Second view is more common in, well, in many circles, but especially in, in circles that some of you have grown up in. It's called the moral government view. And what it says is that God did actually put Jesus to death for your sins, not carrying them, but as an example to the whole world of his wrath and what his justice would demand. But then having displayed in the crucifixion of Jesus his justice, he backs off and says, okay, now I've shown you. Now you need to respond. And by your response, your repentance, your turning to God and saying, I'll obey you, you please God. Again, it's not the blood of Jesus wiping away your sin, carrying your deeds on Calvary. It's what you do. The third view, the final view of, and the right view is what's called the the substitutionary view of the atonement, which is, as it sounds, that Jesus came and was your substitute, bore your sin, suffered what was due you. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Each of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Could it be more clear? Can it be stated more simply? Jesus suffered for your sin. Jesus died because you were owed death. Jesus had to be the son of God because only the son of God has such infinite worth and value that he can take the sins of this entire room. It takes the son of God actually to to overcome the depth of my own, just my wickedness. No man can offer a sacrifice for that. And so the question is, how do you look to Jesus? How do you look to him? And how do you look to yourself? In that, um, in that video of the, the showdown at Kruger, couple interesting points. One of those interesting points is when the, the water buffalo first surround the lions and they kind of go, oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> you know what? We're thinking a little better of, of, of taking this little guy. Uh, and the first one and a couple pull their fangs out of them. And they kind of stand there. The little buffalo wanders back into the crowd and they stand there. You know what they are then? They are repentant. They're saying, okay, okay. We repent. But they're still lions, aren't they? And then a little bit later in the, uh, the showdown, the chief lion, the, the, the male of the pride, is, is looking at the big bull. And he's going, like, all right, I'm, I'm backing off. And it's kind of like he's saying, I'm going to lead a good life now, you know? But you know what every single one of those water buffalo know about that guy? They know he's still a lion. He's still a lion. And they're not satisfied with him, with his repentance. And they're not satisfied with him vowing, I'm going to lead a new life now. I'm, I'm backing away. I've, I've learned a thing or two here. He's a lion. And he's a threat. And until he stops being a lion, they're going to fight him. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner through and through. Your repentance doesn't stop you from being a sinner. Your vowing to lead a good life doesn't stop you from being a sinner. You're still a sinner until you turn to Jesus and say, 
I have to die. Let me die with you and be born again so that I'm no longer what I've been. Otherwise, I'm just a lion through and through. Have you been born again? Have you turned to Jesus and said, I am a sinner. I fear the judgment. I know there's nothing good in me. And I'm turning to you, asking you to make me new. Are you a new creation? Have you been born again? Do you know that you're no longer a lion? Does everyone who lives around you understand that you've been changed and that you're no longer a lion? What has God done in your life? What power of Christ has been revealed in you? What does the world know about you? And what will Jesus say about you when he returns? Will he find a proud man who says, Jesus, I did my best. Will he find a humble woman who says, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. You've done it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for its challenge. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give everyone here this morning the new birth. That each of us will turn to you, not in pride, not in confidence, but in a hope in you. And that we will find from you the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. May none of these here this morning be cast out of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.